Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. Democracy Now. She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances, Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and uh, and she should have been there all along. WNBA star Brittany Griner has landed back in the United States after nearly 10 months jailed in Russia. She was freed in a dramatic prisoner swap in exchange for Victor Boot, a convicted Russian arms dealer. We'll speak to sports writer Dave Zirin, then an army trafficking investigator who tracked Victor Boot for years. Also, we'll look at the assassination of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. A U.S. federal judge has dismissed a lawsuit against the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, for his role in the murder after the Biden administration granted him sovereign immunity. There was no obligation for the Biden administration to say anything. They could have remained mum on the matter uh, if it was just too politically difficult uh, and costly for them to weigh in. Um, But they chose not to do that. They chose uh, to voluntarily respond to the court uh, to suggest immunity for Mohammed bin Salman. We'll speak to Sarah Lee Whitson of Dawn, Democracy for the Arab World Now. The group was a co-plaintiff with Khashoggi's fiancé in the lawsuit. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. WNBA star Brittany Griner landed in San Antonio, Texas, early this morning after her release Thursday from a Russian prison in exchange for notorious Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. The prisoner swap ends Griner's 10-month ordeal, which started with her arrest at a Moscow airport for possessing a small amount of cannabis oil. She'd been sentenced to nine years in a Russian labor camp. President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris celebrated the news at the White House Thursday with Brittany Griner's wife, Sherelle. Today, my family is whole, but as you all are aware, there's so many other families who are not whole. And so BG's not here to say this, but I will gladly speak on her behalf and say that BG and I will remain committed to the work of getting every American home. We'll have more on this case, including a look at arms dealer Victor Boot, known as the Merchant of Death, after headlines. The House of Representatives passed the Respect for Marriage Act Thursday in a 258 to 169 vote, which enshrines federal protections for same-sex and interracial marriages. The bill now heads to President Biden's desk for his signature. While the law would not prevent states from banning same-sex marriage if the conservative-led Supreme Court overturns Obergefell versus Hodges, it would force those states to recognize marriages from another state. This is Democrat Pramila Jayapal speaking Thursday from the House floor. 
As the mother of an incredible trans daughter, I'm here to fight for her rights and those of all LGBTQ people who for too long have been denied the dignity and the respect that they deserve. And as someone who is myself in an interracial marriage, it is far past time that we codify those rights. 39 House member, 39 Republican Congress members joined with Democrats in supporting same-sex marriage. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema says she's leaving the Democratic Party and is registered as an independent. Her announcement came just days after Democrats clinched a 51-seat majority in the Senate with Raphael Warnock's runoff victory in Georgia. Sinema spoke to CNN's Jake Tapper Thursday. Both parties have created this uh, kind of requirement or a pull towards the edges that you just unthinkingly support all of one party's viewpoints. It's made it difficult to find folks who are willing to work together and solve problems. Senator Sinema did not say whether she would continue to caucus with Democrats as an independent, but said she expects to keep her committee assignments, making that scenario appear likely. Sinema, who started out with the Green Party, has gradually shifted further to the right. She was elected to the Senate in 2018 and, along with West Virginia conservative Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, has blocked the Democratic Party from passing essential legislation, including the $3.5 trillion Build Back Better Act, tackling climate change and infrastructure. Cinema also voted against changing filibuster rules to pass key voting rights legislation. A former conservative Christian lobbyist testified before a House Judiciary Committee panel Thursday detailing how the far-right group Faith and Action systematically lobbied conservative Supreme Court justices, leading to the alleged 2014 leak by Justice Samuel Alito of the landmark Hobby Lobby ruling before it was announced. The court ruled in favor of the craft store chain, which argued it could deny covering the cost of birth control to workers citing religious freedom. This is Reverend Robert Shank. Operation Higher Court involved my recruitment of wealthy donors as stealth missionaries who befriended justices that shared our conservative social and religious sensibilities. Throughout this ordeal, I've had to look deeply at what my cohorts and I did at the Supreme Court. I believe we pushed the boundaries of Christian ethics and compromised the High Court's promise to administer equal justice. The House hearing came after Schenck told The New York Times last month that a wealthy conservative donor informed him about the court's yet-to-be-published decision after she and her husband had dinner with Alito and his wife. Alito has denied the claims. The House of Representatives has voted overwhelmingly in favor of a $858 billion military spending bill. Just 45 Democrats and 35 Republicans voted against the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act. Among them was outgoing New York Democratic Congress member Mondaire Jones, who wrote after the vote, quote, while working families are being crushed by inflation, we should not be spending $45 billion more than the president requested in the NDAA. So Certainly not on top of an already bloated $800 plus billion Pentagon budget full of lobbyist giveaways, he said. Meanwhile, President Biden warned Thursday the U.S. will face disastrous consequences if lawmakers fail to pass a sweeping spending package by a December 16th deadline in order to avoid a government shutdown. 
A new report finds Iranian security forces are targeting women protesters with shotgun fire to their faces, breasts and genitals. The Guardian spoke to doctors and nurses who've treated protesters in secrecy to avoid arrest and who said women frequently arrive with these wounds on their bodies. Security forces have also been accused of firing shots into protesters' eyes, blinding hundreds of women, men and children who've participated in the mass protests. In Qatar, a migrant worker from the Philippines has died after a workplace accident at the training site for the Saudi national soccer team. The death, reported Wednesday, came as Qatar's government faces allegations of gross human and labor rights abuses at work sites associated with the FIFA World Cup. On Thursday, the chief executive of the Qatar World Cup, uh, Nasser al-Qatar, was asked by a Reuters reporter about the latest death of a migrant worker. We're in the middle of a World Cup, and we have a successful World Cup, and this is something that you want to talk about right now, I mean, death is a natural part of life, whether it's at work, whether it's uh, in, your, in your sleep. In a statement, Amnesty International condemned those remarks, adding Qatar authorities, quote, continue to simply write off vast numbers of deaths as being due to natural causes, despite the clear health risks associated with working in extreme temperatures, unquote. Meanwhile, the family of an imprisoned whistleblower says he's been held in solitary confinement and tortured in a Qatari prison during the opening weeks of the World Cup. Abdullah Ibais was serving as a deputy communications director for Qatar's Supreme Committee, which organized the World Cup when he was arrested and accused of bribery in November of 2021. He was sentenced to five years in prison on what his family says are trumped-up charges after he interviewed migrant workers who'd gone on strike over months of unpaid wages, including workers building stadiums for the games. This week, Ipais's family said in an open letter he was subjected to torture after he contributed footage to the ITV documentary Cutter, State of Fear. This is James Lynch, co-director of the human rights group Fair Square, reading from the family's letter. Abdullah spent four of those days between 2nd and 6th of November in complete darkness in solitary confinement after being physically assaulted by the prison guards. He was in a cell of two by one metres with a hole in the ground as a bathroom and with temperatures near freezing as the prison's central air conditioning was used as a torture device. Abdullah Ibais's family also blasted the FIFA Soccer Federation, calling it complicit in Abdullah's imprisonment. In Honduras, human rights defenders are warning of possible violations after the government of President Xiomara Castro enacted a state of exception, suspending some constitutional rights in Honduras's two largest cities, the capital Tegucigalpa and San Pedro Sula. The move is part of a massive crackdown on gangs and crime. Thousands of police have been deployed in both cities to target people suspected of being involved in criminal activity with arbitrary arrests and searches. The measure is scheduled to be in place for one month, but Honduran lawmakers have the power to extend it. A similar decree was imposed in neighboring El Salvador in March. Meanwhile, a new report by Human Rights Watch condemns ongoing abuses under El Salvador's state of exception enacted nearly a year ago by the president, Nayib Bukele, to address gang violence. Security forces are accused of mass arbitrary arrests and detentions, forced disappearances and torture. Salvadoran authorities have targeted low-income neighborhoods with indiscriminate raids, arresting over 58,000 people, including more than 1,600 children. At least 90 people have died in police custody since the state of exception began in March. This is Juanita Gobertas, America's director at Human Rights Watch. 
We are convinced that a security policy is needed to dismantle the gangs, but a policy based on the violation of human rights is not sustainable. A policy that simply concentrates on sending marginalized youths to jail without even the possibility of defending themselves and having their cases heard by a judge is not sustainable. Here in New York, dozens of students at the New School have announced an indefinite occupation of one of the university's buildings in solidarity with some 1,500 part-time faculty members who've been on strike since mid-November. They're demanding the university provide affordable and reliable health insurance, higher wages to match skyrocketing inflation, job security and protections against discrimination and harassment. This week, the new school said it had stopped paying wages and health care premiums to the part-time staff on the picket line, prompting outrage from the strikers. Hi, my name is Kristen Clifford, and I am a member of the part-time faculty at the New School, and we are currently on strike. And yesterday, the management of the New School said they were going to take away our health care. I am currently at the cancer center waiting for a biopsy. Please, please, please give us our health care. Please give us a fair contract. Striking workers received a new offer from New School Management Thursday. They'll remain on strike as they review the offer. And hundreds of striking New York Times workers and their supporters rallied on picket lines in Manhattan's Times Square Thursday in a one-day walkout, demanding the newspaper's managers agree to a new contract after more than a year and a half of union negotiations. Bill Baker, a New York Times worker and union leader, said actions taken by management do not comport with the pro-union and workers' rights sentiments often found in the pages of the New York Times. It's problematic for us when they speak externally about labor and about the right for people to work and organize and fair wages and stuff, but when they speak to the workers internally, they say something different. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. WNBA star Brittany Griner is free. She's back in the United States after nearly 10 months jailed in Russia. She was freed Thursday in a dramatic prisoner swap between the United States and Russia. As part of the deal, the Biden administration freed Victor Boot, a convicted Russian arms dealer who was serving a 25-year sentence. The prisoner swap took place on the runway of an airport in Abu Dhabi. Early this morning, a plane carrying Brittany Griner landed in San Antonio, Texas, where she'll undergo a medical evaluation at a military hospital. Brittany Griner had been held in Russia since February, when she was arrested at the Moscow airport for possessing a small amount of cannabis oil. President Biden announced the prisoner swap Thursday morning at the White House. She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia— held under intolerable circumstances. Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and uh, and she should have been there all along. Brittany Griner's wife, Sherelle Griner, also spoke at the White House. During a remark, she made reference to Paul Whelan, the American former Marine who remains jailed in Russia. Today, my family is whole, but as you all are aware, there are so many other families who are not whole. And so BG's not here to say this, but I will gladly speak on her behalf and say that BG and I will remain committed to the work of getting every American home, including Paul, whose family is in our hearts today as we celebrate BG being home. We do understand that there are still people out here who are enduring what I endured the last nine months of missing 
tremendously their loved ones. So thank you everybody for your support. Um, and today it's just a happy day for me and my family. So um, I'm going to smile right now. <laughs> um, thank you. The Biden administration had initially proposed a two-for-one prisoner swap involving both Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan, but that was rejected by Russia. On Thursday, Paul Whelan's brother David told CNN he supported Biden's decision to secure Brittany Griner's freedom. I'm absolutely supportive of it. I think to prolong the uh, punishment of one American in a foreign uh, hostage situation on the hope that you might be able to bring home two of them is absolutely the wrong call for the U.S. president to make. Uh, an American in that situation uh, who has a possibility of coming home, I think the U.S. president has to bring them home. And unfortunately for my brother and for our family, it's not our family member, but I think from the perspective of Americans, uh, mm. that's the right decision. We begin today's show with Dave Zirin, host of Edge of Sports podcast and sports editor for The Nation magazine, where his latest article is headlined, A Vindication for Agitation, Brittany Griner's Coming Home. Well, Brittany Griner is free, Dave Zirin. Were you surprised by the news yesterday and the speed with which she has come home to San Antonio, Texas? She is a—she uh, grew up in Houston. Talk about the significance of how you believe she was freed. Yeah, Amy, thanks so much for having me. When I heard that Brittany Griner was going to be freed, I was floored. Uh, I had tears in my eyes. Uh, my phone was blowing up about this. Obviously, I've been investigating and covering this story for months. And no, this was not something I expected because earlier in that week, you heard that negotiations were again breaking down. And I think it's so important as we discuss the ins and outs of this that we don't lose the plot. And that's that Brittany Griner is coming home. Brittany Griner is going to be back with her family. Uh, Brittany Griner is going to be back with her family for the holidays, for goodness sakes. And we have to remember that this is a moment of celebration and a moment of joy during a time where celebration and joy are in short supply. And talk about, well, what your title was about, the agitation. Uh, who was there for her and who wasn't? Why you think she is free today? Yes. When Brittany Griner was first uh, imprisoned, when we first got word of it in late February and early March, uh, the response from the sports world, you can really characterize it as existing in two different lanes. In one lane, you had a sports world that is awash in racism, sexism, and homophobia. And Brit Brittany Griner is, of course, a, a black queer woman. And the amount of erasure and deliberate, deliberate ignoring of Brittany Griner's case was apparent to anybody who listens to sports radio or watches sports television. I mean, if it was Steph Curry or Tom Brady imprisoned overseas in a Russian prison facing nine years of hard labor, I mean, the earth would have opened up. The cacophony would have been so loud. Yet with Brittany Griner, there was silence. There was another lane of people as well who love Brittany Griner, people in the WNBA and NBA communities who, on the advice from the State Department, were silent because the State Department said delicate negotiations are taking place, so we don't want any outcry about Brittany whatsoever. And that created this veil of silence and even shame about Brittany Griner being arrested. And then there was Sherelle Griner in all her heroism speaking out, saying the heck with this silence. We need to shine light on this and raise Brittany Griner's name 
name. So there is much more of an effort to agitate to make sure that Brittany Griner's name and Paul Whelan's name are at the top of the State Department's to-do list, at the top of Antony Blinken's to-do list. And that agitation grew and grew, both in the sports world and among fans. Uh, people made buttons and T-shirts and took them to games. Uh, the sports world could no longer be silent. Steph Curry mentioned uh, Brittany Griner at the ring ceremony for the Golden State Warriors, and the cacophony did start to grow. And I do believe that Along with, frankly, uh, the fact that Russia is losing to Ukraine and Vladimir Putin felt like he needed a win of some kind, I think that's why this trade took place. So in one degree, you can say that the Ukrainian resistance is why Brittany Griner is coming home. Well, White House Press Secretary uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre denied claims by the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia that they had any involvement in the mediation efforts that secured the release of Brittany Griner from the Russian labor prison camp. The only countries that negotiated uh, this deal were the United States and Russia. And there was no mediation uh, involved. We are grateful for the uh, UAE, as the president mentioned, as I am mentioning now, for facilitating uh, the use of their territory for the exchange to take place. Uh, we are also grateful to other countries, including Saudi Arabia, that released the issue of our wrongfully detained Americans with uh, Russian government. A joint statement by the UAE and Saudi Arabia released Thursday had said that Brittany Griner's release, quote, highlighted the important role played by the leaderships of the two brotherly countries in promoting dialogue between all parties. Dave. Yeah, I mean, so th this was a tremendous effort by all corners to get Brittany Griner home. And, and there is something that I think needs to be said about this that's so important. I mean, so many people on the right wing, I know you're going to talk about Victor Boot in the next segment. But my goodness, the fainting couches about doing this trade for Victor Boot when the U.S. is the biggest arms dealer in the world is a, is a little tough to swallow. But I know you're going to talk about that in the next segment. But the most important thing is that we fought for Brittany Griner to come home. And I know there are a lot of people out there who say, well, we have these problems in this country. Shouldn't we focus on them, about prisons, about the drug laws in this country? But we have to have a global perspective about prison abolition, about the war on drugs. And that's why Brittany Griner's freedom should be seen as a victory for anybody who gives a damn about social justice in this country. So you have this announcement yesterday at the White House, Sherelle Griner smiling ear to ear, uh, Brittany Griner's wife. And just hours later, uh, you have 39 Republicans joining with the Democrats in the House of Representatives voting to support marriage equality. Um, at the same time in Russia, you have Putin on Monday, signing a fiercely anti-LGBTQ law into effect, making it dangerous to be LGBTQ in Russia. Can you talk about what Brittany Griner faced as a lesbian, as an African-American woman in Russia in prison? Well, according to reports by people who've been in the prison that she was going to be in for the next nine years, a labor camp in Mordovia, uh, the racism, the, uh, of course, anti-Americanism and the uh, homophobia are so intense that we can say that Brittany Griner's life would have been hell. And there's no saying that she would have even survived the next nine years. In addition, in Mordovia, we know that there are no medical services to be. Uh, we don't even know if Brittany Griner and her six foot eight inch frame would have had a bed that she could 
sleep in. Uh, that's what she was facing over the next nine years. So getting her home was about the fact that we don't know if she could have survived in such a situation. And I encourage people to, to read the words of Nadia Tol- Tolkienikova uh, from Pussy Riot, who spent three years in the same Mordovian prison. It is absolutely chilling what Brittany Griner would have faced. And her coming home, I really do believe, is about saving her life, as well as returning her to her family. And finally, very quickly, Dave, on another subject, you're certainly following the FIFA World Cup in Qatar, the death of yet another worker and the response by the Qatari government that death is part of the life process. Can you respond? Yeah, yeah, shocking, disturbing. This is a World Cup that comes to us soaked in blood and dirt. Now, other World Cups have had their share of injustices, no question. But what's happening in Qatar is a crime against humanity. Dave Zirin, sports editor for The Nation magazine, host of the Edge of Sports podcast. We're going to link to his new article in The Nation magazine, A Vindication for Agitation, Brittany Griner's Coming Home. Go to democracynow.org. Next up, WNBA star Brittany Griner was freed in a dramatic prisoner swap in exchange for Victor Boot, the convicted Russian arms dealer. A lot has been made of him selling weapons to everyone from al-Qaeda to the Taliban. What about being paid millions of dollars by the United States. Stay with us. When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. Solidarity Forever from the album It Could Be a Wonderful World, Mid-Century Masters of Labor Song. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We look more now at the Russian arms dealer who the U.S. exchanged for Brittany Griner. Victor Boots, a former Soviet military officer who became rich as an arms dealer, is known as the Merchant of Death. He was serving a 25-year prison sentence in the United States for conspiracy to commit terrorism. Our next guest is a former United Nations arms trafficking investigator who says the case allowed American companies to avoid exposure of their collusion with the U.S. government and private companies linked to then-Vice President Dick Cheney during the Iraq War, even after U.N. sanctions against him in 2004. Authorities say Victor Boot was involved in trafficking arms to dictators, stoking conflicts in Africa, South America, and the Middle East. He's also been accused of furnishing weapons to al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and achieved particular notoriety for selling arms in Rwanda in 1998, just four years after the Rwandan genocide. Before he was sentenced in 2012, Victor Booth spoke to Voice of Russia and said arms suppliers in the U.S. should be in prison, too. I'm innocent. I don't commit any crime. There is no crime to sit and talk. If you're going to apply the same you know, standards to me, then you're going to you know, jail all those arms dealers in America who are selling their arms and ending up killing Americans. They are involved even more than me. 
That was over a decade ago, in 2012, when Victor Boot was sentenced. He spent 11 years so far in jail before being traded for Brittany Griner back to Russia. We're joined now by Kathy Lynn Austin, the former U.N. arms trafficking investigator, executive director of the Conflict Awareness Project, dedicated to tracking global weapons traffickers and exposing the illicit world of war profiteering. We spoke to you when Victor Boot was sentenced a decade ago. Now he's been released in a prisoner swap. The former federal judge who sentenced him in 2011 thought his 11 years behind bars was adequate punishment. Judge Shira Scheinland told the Associated Press in July he's done enough time for what he did in this case. She reaffirmed this uh, speaking out yesterday. Uh, Kathy, welcome back to Democracy Now! Your response to Victor Boot's release. Well, of course, as a human rights investigator, excited and celebrating with Brittany Griner's family that she is finally brought home free. Um, she was a pawn in a political pawn for Putin, who wanted Victor Boot back home ever since Victor Boot had been arrested, ever since he'd been convicted and put in prison. He was the number one sort of talk on the table between Russia and the U.S. whenever there was a foreign policy meeting between the two countries. But it is such a difficult time for those of us who are aware of how Victor Boot can be easily deployed in war zone and conflict zones, Ukraine, um, by Putin again. He is a personified weapon of mass destruction, and he has always proven himself ready, willing, and able. So, if you can talk about what the media is talking about right now, um, what Victor Boot was involved with, and what they're not talking about. I mean, selling arms to al-Qaeda uh, and to the Taliban, um, among other things, uh, said he was involved in selling arms to those who would kill Americans as well. If you can talk about that record, but also this guy is transnational. Um, and talk about his involvement with the U.S. government and the U.S. government paying him, what came out in the trial, what didn't, and what his involvement with Vice President Cheney, Halliburton, and the Iraq War was all about. Well, Victor Boot never had any particular allegiance to any government, to any ideology. Victor Boot was all about profiting. He was all about bringing, using pilots and planes and being the Federal Express of weapons into any conflict zone where he could make a profit. He, even while he was on sanctions, um, U.S. sanctions, U.N. sanctions, EU sanctions, he still managed through stealth means to evade those sanctions, to bust them. And it was during the war in Iraq when he pulled the wool over the eyes of the Department of Defense, the Pentagon, and he was used for approximately 140 flights of bringing in logistical supplies for the U.S. while he used that cover in order to supply weapons to our, the enemy that we were fighting at the time. So we are talking about a very maniacal and a very sophisticated arms dealer, and he's one that being on the loose again should cause us all—should cause a lot of concern. 
from a national security perspective, but from a human rights perspective as well. And the U.S. government paying him? He is very clear well, he, about this. He said, if they're going to put me in prison, you should understand how many millions of dollars I've been paid by them. Well, he was, as I mentioned, on the employee, and he was a arms trafficker, a profiteer, working for many, many different sides of conflict, wherever he can make money. Um, but the, the important thing now is, is that we need to use the release of Victor Boot as a lightning rod. We need to use this as an opportunity um, to mitigate any national security threat that Victor Boot still poses to the U.S. and its allies, and for the U.S. to be more proactive in preventing illicit global arms trafficking. That is really what I am hoping will come about from the release of Victor Boot, that we can get the sporting community, um, that we can get the White House and Congress to take a deep, hard look now at this problem of these illegal arms traffickers and use this as, as an opportunity to box them in. And if you can talk about the U.S. government saying now that they have deemed he is not a threat to the United States and also how he was ultimately trapped in Thailand. You see these images of DEA taking him in. Um, but that gives you the sense that it was the U.S. that was opposed to him. They did trap him. But talk about the Colombian and uh, Guatemalan military folks that they were working with, who were also criminals themselves. Well, uh, the DEA and the Department of Justice and law enforcement ran a very serious operation to br bring Victor Boot to justice. Um, he was a menace, um, not only to the United States then, and a menace to our allies. Um, Victor Boot had been operating in every country from Colombia to Afghanistan to Rwanda. Um, he has literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of deaths on his hand. So the U.S. finally was enabled use taxpayers' money and resources to bring Victor Boot to justice. And that was a great day to take this one monster out of the equation. It go went a long way for world peace and stability in the areas where Victor Boot was operating. Um, but the problem with these illegal arms traffickers and the reason why some they're sort of uniquely unregulated or why we don't really give enough attention to them. We have a czar for drug trafficking. We don't have any czar going uh, looking at the problem of um, global arms traffickers, which is something I've been discussing with the administration, with Congress. We need to take we need to start thinking about taking steps in that direction um, because they don't have allegiances. They don't have loyalties. But the issue now with Victor Boot, having Putin brought bring, having brought him home, he will now serve as Putin's number one asset. Um, he will be weaponized and he knows how to sanctions bust and he will be very proactive in Ukraine. And so that's where I would expect Victor Boot to use his skills just at a time when Western sanctions are beginning to cripple Russia and Russia's military. You're going to have the likes and ilks of Victor Boot. So I think we use, need to use this as a lightning rod 
opportunity so that there isn't collateral damage from this incredible release of Brittany Griner and this prisoner swap, and that instead we put in place very tight controls, not only on foreign um, arms traffickers, but also domestic ones. We have, you know, the sort of main source of weapons into Mexico. And part of the reason why we have so much trouble on our border is a result of a lot of the U.S. arms going illegally into Mexico. So let's use this as an opportunity to create and put in place new measures to stop these global arms traffickers, overall, whether they're operating the, in U.S. soil the, or, oh, or, or in other places. And Kathy, overall, the involvement of the U.S. in the international arms trade is at number one when it comes to arms sales. And how does that affect the global discussion and the interference with treaties that would stem this? Well, I think we have to look at arms trade in there's sort of three different categories here. You have the legal arms trade, legal transfers, which the U.S. is the number one, um, but goes through very specific channels. Um, we also have the gray market, which is kind of where Victor Boot fit in, where um, governments will use these illegal arms traffickers when they need them to carry out national security operations or clandestine operations in other countries. And then there is the black market. Um, so the gray market, the black market, we need to tighten up. Um, that is kind of where the work that the conflict awareness um, project is engaged, is looking at the illegal traffickers. And then we do need to do more about reducing um, legal arms flows, especially to human rights abusing, abusing regimes and, into, and conflict areas around the globe. Kathy Lynn Austin, I want to thank you so much for being with us, former U.N. arms trafficking investigator, executive director of the Conflict Awareness Project, dedicated to tracking global weapons traffickers, exposing illicit world of war profiteering. Next up, we look at the assassination of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. As well, we look at the visit between Chinese President Xi and the Saudi crown prince. Stay with us. Part two by Justice. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show looking at Saudi Arabia. The Chinese President Xi Jinping met Thursday with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman as the two countries move to increase economic ties. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., a federal judge has dismissed a lawsuit against Mohammed bin Salman for his role in the murder and dismemberment of Saudi journalist Shamel Khashoggi inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. The U.S. judge dismissed the suit, citing the Biden administration's recent granting of sovereign immunity to bin Salman. On Thursday, Democracy Now!'s Nermeen Sheikh and I spoke with Sarah Lee Whitson of Dawn, the Democracy for Our World Now. The group was a co-plaintiff with Khashoggi's fiancé in the U.S. lawsuit against the Saudi Arabian crown prince. I began by asking her about what happened to Jamel Khashoggi. 
I think starting with the murder uh, of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, all of the available evidence, including the U.N. Special Rapporteur's report uh, and the U.S. government's own report on the murder, uh, have documented uh, in great detail how uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman and uh, his agents uh, wooed Jamal Khashoggi from the United States uh, to travel to uh, Istanbul in order to try to obtain a marriage certificate there. Um, this was the pretext to leading him uh, to the consulate where murderous Saudi agents uh, tortured him uh, and murdered him. Of course, the Saudi government lied about torturing and murdering him uh, in the consulate uh, until overwhelming evidence, including video and audio recordings, uh, showed exactly um, what they did to him. Um, the CIA concluded that Mohammed bin Salman ordered um, the killing uh, based on uh, WhatsApp texts between him and Saud al-Kahtani, uh, both before and after the murder, uh, the use of Saudi state planes to transport the murders, uh, and, you know, the overwhelming uh, uh, evidence showing uh, that only he uh, could have ordered uh, this uh, atrocious act. Uh, our organization, Democracy for the Arab World Now, along with Khadija Jengis, brought the lawsuit in the United States uh, under the Torture Victims Prevention Act and the Alien Tort Claims Act, as well as state law claims, uh, in order to seek accountability uh, in a civil lawsuit uh, for this murder uh, and serving Mohammed bin Salman and two of his most senior agents uh, for this murder. Uh, now, the defendants, Mohammed bin Salman, Kahtani, and Asidi, immediately filed a motion to dismiss, uh, uh, seeking uh, uh, that the case be dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. Uh, but when the court would not rule on that, uh, uh, they turned to the Biden administration uh, to seek uh, intervention in the lawsuit. The Biden administration was not suggesting immunity, just as the Trump administration was not suggesting immunity. And this became a terrible bone of contention uh, between the Saudi government uh, and the Biden administration. Uh, the Saudi government uh, kept demanding uh, that MBS receive immunity in this lawsuit uh, and really just uh, uh, threatened to uphold uh, uh, oil uh, uh, production, uh, as well as not taking calls from President Biden. Uh, and, of course, uh, uh, the golden uh, card uh, not uh, normalizing with Saudi uh, with Israel. Uh, until the Biden administration did what they wanted. Um, when, again, the Biden administration was not intervening days before the deadline uh, for them to intervene after the third delay, uh, the Saudi government issued a royal decree uh, temporarily appointing Mohammed bin Salman as prime minister instead of the king, um, which is what the basic law of Saudi Arabia provides, in uh, really an, a last-ditch ploy uh, to secure immunity as head of government. Uh, following this, um, the Biden administration did intervene in our lawsuit to suggest immunity for Mohammed bin Salman. And as you noted, this is what uh, the judge cited in his decision uh, to uh, dismiss the lawsuit against him. Um, uh, of course, we believe as a matter of law and a matter of fact, uh, this was a fake manipulative ploy uh, to uh, title wash uh, himself with a bogus uh, title and bogus powers uh, as head of government. When we all know under uh, Saudi law, the king is the uh, only and absolute authority in the country. Um, but the Biden administration was hoping that Saudi Arabia would cut 
uh, would increase oil production rather than cut oil production, um, despite this massive concession by uh, the Biden administration, what did the Saudi government turn around and do? They reaffirmed oil cuts uh, in a, a very clear punishment uh, for the Biden administration, um, which was first announced ahead of the midterm elections, of course, uh, in a, a, a very transparent effort uh, to hurt the Biden administration and the Democratic Party uh, before the elections. And Sarah, just Sarah Lee, just to be clear, um, once MBS had been named uh, a prime minister, even though it's a nominal position, uh, would it have been possible for the U.S. not to have recognized him in that position and thereby denied him sovereign immunity? Or was that uh, not an option? Well, uh, it was absolutely an option not to recognize this uh, uh, immunity ploy. Um, and I think we laid out very strong arguments, both as a matter of law and a matter of fact, um, that they should not recognize this phony uh, title, um, this phony effort uh, mere days before the deadline uh, for the administration to weigh in, uh, to come up with a title for uh, Mohammed bin Salman um, that formally, technically, is a head of government role. Um, they also could have just not weighed in at all. There was no obligation for the Biden administration to say anything. They could have remained mum on the matter uh, if it was just too politically difficult uh, and costly for them to weigh in. Um, but they chose not to do that. They chose uh, to voluntarily respond to the court uh, to suggest immunity for Mohammed bin Salman. Um, what we hoped at minimum was that they would just stay silent on the matter. Of and course, you say they, they didn't. And I just wanted to read that quote of Biden when he was running for president, uh, saying we're going to make uh, them pay the price, make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. So at this point, um, has the case been dropped? Where do you go with your lawsuit, yours and Hatice Cengiz, the um, the fiance of the late Khashoggi? Well, um, obviously, uh, as with any uh, district court decision, we have the option to file an appeal uh, to the appellate court. Uh, and we are uh, consulting with our lawyers, as well as Khadija, uh, to determine what uh, will make uh, uh, the most sense. Uh, uh, because, quite frankly, uh, as a matter of law, when a, a, an administration suggests immunity uh, for uh, uh, someone as a head of government or head of state, uh, there's virtually no uh, willingness on the part of courts uh, to go against that. So it is a very, very uh, uphill and challenging uh, situation that we're in. Charlie, now if we could turn to the visit of a Chinese President Xi to Saudi Arabia, his meeting uh, today, Thursday, with uh, the Crown Prince. Uh, could you talk about what we know of what's emerged from those uh, meetings so far, what deals, what agreements have been reached? Sure. Um, the visit uh, uh, by Xi uh, follows really the last several years of deeply intensifying ties, uh, economic ties, but also military ties uh, between Saudi Arabia and China. Uh, and um, this visit was meant to cap that off uh, uh, with the announcement of over $29 billion in deals in just the first day of Xi's visits uh, in a dramatic expansion of uh, Chinese and uh, uh, Saudi ties. 
Uh, the military ties include uh, a factory to build uh, missiles. Um, that was something that was uncovered uh, earlier this year, uh, as well now as uh, efforts to uh, build a Saudi nuclear plant uh, for civil purposes um, that the Chinese are cooperating uh, with Saudi Arabia on. Um, you know, this is as important as this is economically, this is important politically. Uh, and as important it is politically, it's important symbolically, because this is Saudi Arabia sending a very strong and clear message to the U.S., to the Biden administration, um, that they will seek partners uh, and partnerships um, with China, that they will support Russia, that they are hedging their bets, that they will not rely on the United States for everything. The only thing they really want the United States for is for military protection. Uh, the only thing they need the U.S. to do is to really be a mercenary force, uh, one that's handsomely rewarded with massive military defense contracts, which was really the main thing that Biden achieved in his own visit to Saudi Arabia in July. Um, but that there is no uh, a political loyalty, there is no partnership, there is uh, nothing other than the U.S. serving as security guards uh, for Saudi Arabia. Um, and I think we all need to reorient our understanding that this is a position that the U.S. government and not just the Biden administration, but the Trump administration before him and the Obama administration before him have accepted. They have accepted the terms of their service agreement uh, with Saudi Arabia, and they have no uh, ability to show anything for it in terms of reciprocity uh, from Saudi Arabia for American interests. Sarah Lee, what is the nature of the security guarantees that Saudi Arabia seeks from the U.S. and, and security and protection from whom? Um, well, uh, uh, obviously, Saudi Arabia is a totalitarian state that uh, increasingly rules with absolute repression against its own citizens. Um, there are, of course, many decades of uh, uh, terrorist uh, incidents in Saudi Arabia that have threatened uh, the, the royal monarchy. Uh, and I think, first and foremost, it is to protect um, the uh, absolute monarchy that rules Saudi Arabia, and I think for decades has done so as a compliant partner for the United States. Um, what Saudi Arabia has demanded, which is exactly what the UAE has demanded from the U.S. government, are bilateral security agreements with NATO-level protections, which means that anytime Saudi Arabia comes under attack, uh, it will uh, be defended by the United States. Uh, of course, uh, there have been a number of very serious Houthi missile strikes on Saudi Arabia across the border for the past eight years and deeper and deeper into uh, Saudi Arabia, including, of course, uh, uh, the infamous attack on the Abishek oil facility, uh, which significantly uh, hampered Saudi oil protection uh, production uh, uh, for a while. Now, the Biden administration has refused to give them that bilateral actual uh, defense agreement, treaty level uh, commitments and guarantees. But what the Biden administration did deliver uh, is a security umbrella, is an aerial security security umbrella, uh, uh, along with uh, Israel, Bahrain, uh, Jordan, um, that basically uh, uh, assures uh, that the U.S. will protect uh, Saudi Arabia and a number of other states uh, from any aerial attack uh, defensively. Now, this is not the level of security guarantee that Saudi and UAE want, and this is why they continue uh, to yank on America's leash.
Well, Sarah Lee, as you've uh, pointed out, of course, the situation with the, the U.S. Uh, uh, and Saudi Arabia has changed also uh, with respect to the extent of uh, the U.S.'s dependence on Saudi Arabia for oil. Now, uh, the U.S. gets very little of its oil from Saudi Arabia, whereas China uh, now gets the majority of its oil from Saudi Arabia. One of the issues that has reportedly been discussed in the talks uh, between Xi and uh, 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 MBS in Saudi Arabia has has been the question of whether some Saudi oil sales can be priced in yuan, in, in Chinese currency, rather than in U.S. dollars. What do we know about what has been discussed uh, on that issue and what the implications of that would be if Saudi oil could be uh, denominated in Chinese currency and not American mm -hmm. currency? Uh, I think there are two points. First, uh, to uh, the point you noted that the United States no longer depends on Saudi Arabian oil, uh, imports very little Saudi Arabian oil. Uh, I think what's important to understand is that uh, Saudi's uh, dominant role in OPEC means that it has a massive control over the price of oil globally, um, because this is set by the markets. Uh, and so even though the United States doesn't directly import a, a significant amount of oil from Saudi Arabia, it is dependent on the price of oil. And the uh, dramatically escalating oil prices in the United States are directly linked to what Saudi Arabia decides to do in terms of oil output uh, as part of OPEC. Uh, in addition, uh, America is very concerned about oil prices uh, in Europe and particularly uh, as part of the Ukraine war. So that has made the United States more dependent on Saudi Arabia to increase oil output, to keep the price of oil down globally. So this isn't just about what oil enters the United States from Saudi Arabia, it's about Saudi Arabia's power over the price of oil globally, which is very, very important to the Biden administration. Uh, in terms of the discussions over pegging the price uh, to yuan, um, this is extremely significant um, because it would diminish uh, one of the main levers of control and influence of the United States uh, to have uh, the, the price of oil and the exchange of oil uh, cleared in dollars, uh, exchanged and represented in in dollars. To the extent that they move off of this dollar system and move to yuan, it's one more lever of independence uh, from what the United States can do to influence oil prices uh, and, frankly, just to influence uh, global markets because uh, first will come oil and repegging oil in non-dollar non currency, but then will come other assets. Uh, I think everyone should see um, that the recent uh, cap uh, on uh, Russian oil prices, this, this artificial made-up price for Russian oil, which is basically a reverse uh, uh, price fixing uh, to what OPEC does in fixing its oil, is something that is not just threatening to Russia, but is very, very threatening uh, to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, because they know that if this is something that the U.S. is doing to Russia today, uh, it can turn around and do it to them um, the next day. And I think so what you're going to see is China, Russia, and all of the OPEC states increasingly find ways not only to liberate themselves from the dictatorship of the dollar, um, but also liberate themselves in terms of shipping and insurance, which are the main levers that the U.S. and Europe are going to use to enforce uh, the price limit on Russian oil. 
uh, and so in a, in a, in a weird way, in an ironic way, perhaps, um, efforts to quash Russian oil production, uh, uh, may well boomerang, uh, into, uh, increased, uh, efforts to remove the influence and control, uh, on global transactions, on global shipping, on global insurance, um, that have been used to keep, uh, or efforts to keep Russia uh, and other countries in line, um, because Saudi and UAE see whatever the U.S. is doing to Russia, whatever Europe is doing to Russia may well happen to them next from their yachts, from their properties all over the West, uh, and of course, with the price of oil. Terli, could you also talk about um, the ex- increasing uh, cooperation uh, between China and Saudi Arabia on uh, telecommunications, the fact that uh, China has been in discussions uh, on expanding both 5G and 6G telecommun- uh, telecommunication networks uh, throughout Saudi Arabia, and why that's raising concerns uh, in the U.S.? Um, well, uh, uh, this is a you know a, a, a game of whack-a-mole because the United States has been trying to prevent uh, uh, countries around the world from signing 5G and 6G uh, deals with China because it would basically give them a complete uh, market control, uh, um, but also intelligence and surveillance control over the networks, uh, uh, trans- uh, communication networks uh, that they install, uh, build, and deliver. And of course, it's extremely extremely lucrative um, and is a long-term business investment. So uh, the United States thought it secured uh, commitments and agreements from Saudi Arabia in July not to develop 5G and 6G uh, with uh, China. Um, And that has not been mentioned as one of the deals that they are announcing. Um, But it is mentioned that it is something that they continue to work on. Um, But, you know, this issue of 5G, 6G, it's something the U.S. has uh, faced and tried to challenge not just with Saudi Arabia, but even with the United Kingdom as a major bone of contention, even with Canada. Um, This is uh, really China expanding and growing uh, its uh, ability to deliver the highest technology, but with that, the highest influence and control uh, over global communication networks. And this is why the United States uh, is uh, really, really concerned uh, about the expansion of Chinese 5G and 6G technologies. Sarah Lee, I want to end with the issue of Yemen. Uh, Here in the U.S., over a Hundred groups have urged Congress Wednesday to vote for um, Bernie Sanders' uh, Yemen War Powers Resolution to end the U.S. backing for Saudi Arabia's war and blockade in Yemen. Um, Sanders said he now has enough to support to pass the resolution on the Senate floor uh, and plans to bring uh, his measure to a floor vote as early as next week. Um, this is a, a, a very, very welcome development. Uh, I wish it wasn't so close to um, the next term of Congress when it will be Republican-dominated, which I think will significantly stymie the ability to get this uh, resolution passed in, in, in the House of Representatives as well. Um, uh, it is something that we're seeing because of the uh, uh, end of the truce in Yemen and the recommencement of uh, on-the-ground fighting. Uh, and uh, extremely long overdue. As, 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 as viewers will remember, uh, Congress passed this War Powers Resolution uh, to end U.S. support for the war in Yemen and end uh, uh, U.S. military transfers for the war in Yemen, intelligence sharing uh, uh, military protection uh, for Saudi Arabia and the UAE in the war in Yemen. But Trump vetoed it. Uh, 
Um, uh, now, uh, uh, since we continue to be a participant in that war, uh, providing not just defense protection, uh, intelligence sharing, um, but of course the, the uh, military equipment necessary to pursue this war, uh, uh, Senator Sanders is again trying to pass this war powers resolution. And because it is in the Senate, he does not need to get through committee in order to do that. Uh, it will be uh, interesting to see where the votes line up. Uh, in this moment of time, um, when the Biden administration has so dramatically capitulated uh, to the Saudi government and really doesn't want to do anything to upset the Saudi government because of this competition with China, because of its desire to maintain its uh, military uh, uh, and economic uh, influence uh, in Saudi Arabia, whether they will attempt to uh, uh, quash uh, even this war powers resolution in the Senate. Sarah Lee Whitson, executive director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, or DAWN. And that does it for our show today. Juan Gonzalez gives a speech at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies at 3 p.m. He'll be speaking about 50 years of defending and chronicling America's workers. On Monday at 6.30, he'll give an address on Latinos, race and empire at the CUNY Graduate Center. To see his first speech on reflections of 40 years of fighting for racial and social justice in journalism, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.